Welcome back to another episode of the Matt Pfeiffer Experience. I am your host, Matthew Pfeiffer. Today I have on a very special guest. She is someone who I connected with at the Feel Good As Fuck Festival. And if you guys are not familiar, I'm going to give um, our friend Kenneth a shout out. Make sure you guys follow him on Instagram and on all the other platforms. He would be excited to see you guys. Um, But Jen Couch is someone who has made a decision to live a sober life. And what's different about about Jen is that this was a decision. This isn't a situation and we're not going to downplay people who do go through any sort of program or 12-step program or anyone uh, who has had any sort of DUI or anything like that. We're not shaming anyone for anyone's past. However, uh, she has built a platform and built a community based around sober living just out of because alcohol and drug use has not served a purpose for her. And For a lot of people who are coming out of a toxic relationship, you start to find out that when you decrease your toxic relationship, oftentimes in some people's lives, they begin to increase their drinking and uh, it can cause a lot of self-sabotaging behavior. So I'm looking forward to having this conversation. And without further ado, Jen Couch, thank you very much for joining the program. For those of you who don't know, Jen is down here in Texas with me, so she is right up the street in Fort Worth. And so, Jen, tell us a little bit bit about yourself and tell us more about Sober Sis. Yeah, thank you, Matt. Thank you, my Texas neighbor (laughs) who's in the hot, sweltering summer with me down here. Oh, my goodness. Um, And thank you for having me. This is going to be a great conversation. And I think really just to open up the conversation to any and everyone on the drinking spectrum, and I didn't even know there was a drinking spectrum um, until about four or five, five years ago when I realized there was something that I'd never heard of before called gray area drinking. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Wow. What's that? Mm-hmm. I thought it was black and white, all or nothing. Either you just had a good relationship with alcohol and it was no big deal, or you were a full-blown alcoholic, physically addicted and needed, needed you know, intervention. Um, I didn't really know what to do as someone who felt kind of in the middle and someone who felt like I was really living my life socially um, as everyone else, just drinking socially, but having this other side where I felt like it was something that I was starting to lean on um, as, as a habit that was starting to kind of sabotage my, my health goals, my, my wholehearted living. I felt like I was living Honestly, I felt like I was living a divided life. I was the healthy mom by day, you know, juicing and going to my hot yoga class and really mindful, really uh, productive. And then wine o'clock or five o'clock, I call it wine o'clock, would hit. And that's when the cravings and the urges and all of my good intentions that I just had that morning, like literally flew out the door. And I found myself drinking out of habit, drinking on autopilot drinking to fit in, drinking to subdue anxiety, fill boredom. I I just, sometimes I just drink out of boredom and lack of knowing what to do with myself in the evenings when I was tired and ready to unwind. And that just wasn't good enough for me. But I was asking, I kept asking the wrong question for many years when I tried to change my relationship with drinking. I asked questions like, is it bad enough? And every time I asked myself, is it bad enough to change? Well, it never was bad enough to change because I always looked around and found that 
someone was drinking more, or they had had more external consequences. So because I didn't have that, every time I compared myself to somebody else, I always came out, you know, feeling like I was all right. But when I looked at myself, oh, I knew it was not working for me. It sounded like you were in that trap of comparing comparing yourself to other people. And a lot of times people do that where they compare, well, it always could be worse. And and (laughs) this person, you know, well, at least I don't have a DUI or at least I don't have this. And again, not shaming anyone who who does, but or or who has had had a mistake in in the past. However, when someone is in that gray shaded area that you're talking about, mm-hmm. the problems that you might be looking at or the, the self-sabotaging behavior that you might be looking at might look very differently. And so what, yeah. what were some of those things that you saw within yourself that you said, you know what, I need to start reevaluating what this, what my relationship is with alcohol? Yeah. Well, I definitely had some red flags. I had mm-hmm. some red flags for me and, and really those look like, again, feeling like I was switching kind of my personality, who I was, was something I almost had to check out at at the door of drinking, if you will, Mm -hmm. because it didn't align with me. I had to justify it in some way. And I also felt like the outcome was never what I was desiring. I was always looking for the effect, but not the outcome. Mm -hmm. And the outcome I got was more disconnection from the people around me I was trying to connect with. Um, Less alignment with my, again, those health goals, you know, sober for the health of it is one of my favorite hashtags, because that was like, what am I doing? I'm working out and doing all these things and literally undoing it. And so that wasn't working for me. And this was a huge one, really kind of towards the end of my drinking career, if you will. Sometimes I was pouring a drink when I didn't even want it. Mm -hmm. I didn't want the drink itself. I wanted the effect of the drink. I wanted the buzz. And Mm -hmm. so I knew when I was pouring a drink to get past the first glass so I can enjoy glass two, three or four. Mm -hmm. That was a red flag for me when I was like, I don't really want to. I don't even like this. I don't even like the taste of this right now, but I'm doing it anyway. Why do we want the bus? Yeah, why do we want the bus? I think our society, myself included, uh, just we are so used to altering the way we feel quickly. And mm-hmm. we are, I, I just feel like as a society and a culture, we are constantly looking for an eject button, like an yeah. escape hatch. Uh, because life is too hard, too boring, too scary, too uncertain, too chaotic, too all the things. And so drinking provides a socially acceptable eject button. And when that happens, we don't realize that we're actually disconnecting further and further away from who we really are. We're getting further away from our real true self. Um, But for me, it was all too easy because again, I felt like many of my friends were doing the same thing. I could justify it. I'm seeing it on TV. I'm seeing it in the in the movies that this is what women do, um, especially in the life stage I was in at the time. Raising teenagers, it was kind of like my rite of passage, like, oh, you know, they're making me drink. They're making me want to drink. And uh, nobody can make us do something that we don't really want to do. Absolutely not. And it's uh, it's interesting that you say, you know, disconnecting because one of the things that I spend most of my time and most of my day doing is telling people how it's important, how important it is for us to connect with ourselves and for us to 
be authentic to ourselves. And if drinking is causing us to disconnect, then it goes without saying that we need to reevaluate and we need to consider that that might be causing some of those issues of us not staying present. And some sometimes, oftentimes, because like you said, we're not at that complete end of that other spectrum where we might need intervention. But what type of impact is it having on us as a parent? What type of impact is it having on us health-wise? What type of impact is it having, having um, with, uh, with relationships with other people and also relationships with ourselves? And, and then also our goals. What type of impact would you say it was having on your, on your goals when you, you say that it was having impacts on the direction that you were taking in life and that disconnection? Uh, what did that look like? Yeah, great question. And really the disconnection started with me. And I think I think going back to our relationship with ourselves is so profound. Mm-hmm. I think people forget that everywhere you go, there you are. So our relationship with ourselves is not to be underestimated or minimized in any way. To me, it's the most important relationship because if I'm not connecting with me and wholehearted, I can't speak up for myself. I can't have good, healthy boundaries. And I certainly can't uh, do things for myself that are that are truly serving so that I can serve other people. So I I definitely noticed it. I did what I did, what I often call the bottle breakdown. Do you mind if I break down how to Go ahead, absolutely. on your own mm-hmm. <laughs> easily without uh without even really realizing that that's that's what was going to go on. But I knew I think the self-sabotage comes with the good intentions that morning and then not following through later. I didn't know how to attach the good intentions to the outcome I really wanted at the end. So I would typically, you know, around three or four o'clock that afternoon, uh, low blood sugar, uh, weariness from the day, uh, cumulative effect of all the chaos and uh, navigating conflict and all the things that just kind of can wear us down to make us want to eject. That's, that was my weakest moment. That was like my weak, weakest link in my good intentions. And that was usually at the point of purchase at the grocery store when I was trying to figure out what am I going to make these people for dinner? And I would walk in the grocery store and I would say, no, 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 no. And decision fatigue would set in. And after I said no to the Prosecco by the blueberries and the bottles of cab by the by the raw meat, (laughs) I was so exhausted from saying no, no, no. And living in that deprivation mindset. By the Mm -hmm. time I got to the cash wrap and there it is again, I'm like, screw it. Yes. Yes. I deserve it. I just said no 20 times and my Mm -hmm. willpower is gone and my decision fatigue has set in. So I'd wheel it home and, you know, busted open at five o'clock because that was you know appropriate and uh that's when i would begin to kind of get into this different mode it's like i would shift who Mm -hmm. i really was to just numbing out some of my feelings and my Mm -hmm. boredom the laborious aspects of life where we're just needing to take care of business but we're on routine and uh i would you know, usually have a glass while I was cooking, which, you know, there's nothing wrong with having a glass of wine while you're cooking here and there. All right. Well, I'm doing it on a Tuesday night while I'm making spaghetti while my kids are coming home from sports. You know, wow. What, what, what's really going on there for me? And I knew, Mal, once I opened that bottle, the bottom pretty much had already dropped out. And I really had worked up to that by building up that kind of tolerance 
where three or four glasses of wine in a long evening with, you know, lots of water and eating and, you know, I mean, just kind of absorbing it in my life felt like nothing. Yeah. It felt like nothing. Well, um, you, you've mentioned disconnecting a few times and yeah. while we were kind of doing the pre-show, you mentioned a, a term that I had never heard before, but shadow addiction yes. and, and how, and how that plays such a huge part in, uh, self-sabotaging behavior and what that looks like and correlation. Can you talk a little bit about shadow addiction, what it is and correlation between that and self-sabotaging behavior? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I've learned so much of this from Terry Cole, who wrote Boundary Boss and kind of her definition of a shadow addiction, which I had never heard either, is basically our behaviors that numb out our emotions and create distractions that keep us in familiar dysfunctional patterns and behaviors. So a lot of times I was really dealing with anxiety. I was dealing with sadness. I was dealing with feeling helpless and a little bit out of control. I had one teenager who's in her twenties now, so we're good. But I had one teenager in particular that I was constantly worried about and the anxiety from that. And so drinking was creating, even managing my drinking and thinking about my drinking. And, and uh, this, this shadow addiction was really keeping me from looking at the real problem, which was, like I said, the anxiety, the worry, the feeling of helplessness, powerlessness. It wasn't with the drinking that I felt powerless, although it did have a huge grip on me. It was in my relationship with my daughter that I felt at times powerless and helpless. So I shifted a lot of my distracting behavior to drinking because it kept me working over there trying to fix drinking. I constantly was trying to moderate. I was constantly trying to drink less or not at all. And I could see that was what was so confusing is I could, I could do a whole 30. I could do a 10 day juice cleanse. I could go months. Oh, I would white knuckle it. Yeah. It wasn't fun. And I felt miserable and deprived, but physically not addicted mentally and emotionally always pining away or thinking I'm going to prove to myself that I don't have that big of a problem. But my focus was more on the drinking when really the focus needed to be on why I was drinking in the first place. And that's where I've done the work now. So now my issue isn't drinking. My issue is why was I drinking? And that that's an endless cornucopia of work that can be done was getting to the root of why I was drinking. But when I was drinking, I wasn't focused on those things. It was too painful. And how, and, and, uh, and that's a lot of, uh, I tell people who I work with that are kind of in that, doing that shadow working with their, their shadow addiction, yeah. that oftentimes we don't realize that that numbing that we're doing is that we're actually avoiding pain. But the problem is, is that we can't avoid pain. Oftentimes right. we're actually delaying it, but the, re the reality of it is, is that those emotions that you're trying to avoid, they stay stuck in your body. They don't go anywhere. Literally. So you're not, you, so th this thought process and what people might say on TV or in the movies, I'm drinking the pain away. No, you're not. Right. Oftentimes people who I work with that, mm -hmm. that they, when we start talking about different things and different subjects start to come up, start to come up, it might've been something from 10 years ago that they never right. processed and they just had, they just kept distracting themselves the entire time. And though that pain literally never went anywhere. Right. And so at some point in time, you're going to have to address it. And the thing about pain is that pain 
is not the end all be all. It's not like pain is there for a reason and it's actually helpful. Right. As much as we try to avoid it, pain is there to actually help you heal. And us avoiding pain is actually delaying our healing and delaying us getting to our final destination. If you know, I, I always use this example that if we didn't feel pain in our hands and then we put our hand on a hot stove, people would think that that might make sense, but that actually causes more damage. If you can't feel that you're being burned, then that means that you're going to burn even more. Right. And so we actually have to feel that pain. And so if drinking is causing you to numb that pain, mm -hmm. you're actually causing a lot more damage a than lot. what you might actually realize. Mm -hmm. And that, and for most people, they think and they sit back and they say, well, I just want to feel pain. As long as it's not affecting anybody else, then what do you care? But you don't realize that it actually is because mm -hmm. your relationship on other people with other people is predicated on the relationship you have with yourself. So it's you're relating to people based on the overflow of how you feel. So if you feel pain, you're going to cause pain. If you feel anger, you're going to be angry towards other people. And, then, and that's what's going to be overflowing to everybody else. Gosh, I so agree with that. You know, it's I agree. These negative emotions are just data. Emotions are just feedback. Mm -hmm. And when we cut off the feedback loop, and I've learned this also from Brene Brown, who has talked so much about when we numb, we can't numb, um, you know, feelings are on a spectrum like joy and uh, sadness are on the same spectrum. We can't selectively numb. So when I numb one thing, I'm numbing everything, including the resilience that I need to get through the thing that I'm worried about or just numb it all. It's just a washout. And it's really kicking the can because... Yeah. It's not, you're exactly right. It's not going anywhere. In fact, it's getting stuffed and suppressed and cu the cumulative effect is happening. And that's when people go sideways, they blow up at their spouse, guilty as charged. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that was, that was probably my biggest side leak is we go out, have a few drinks, have different parenting styles. I'm keeping it down when, when we're around the kids, have a few drinks, get my husband behind closed doors. And I'm, you know, I'm like a different person. I did not like that. I like that I can be frustrated now. Mm -hmm. I can be angry, sober-minded, and I'm very aware of my emotions now. And I can feel them all. And it doesn't mean I avoid anger or I don't have anxiety. It just means my reaction is more of a response now. My choice is more of a response yeah. than a reaction. And yeah, it was to the point, really, at, at, I would say at, at my lowest point where I realized hello, Texas, we have a problem mm -hmm. is when I was starting to pregame by having a drink at my house before I went out to dinner with my family, mm -hmm. just so I could feel relaxed enough to get in the car with mm -hmm. four people with shots fired of, you know, remarks and conflict. And I've got a, a really, uh, I've got two people, I've got a family of four. I've got two people that are in a more aggressive stance when it mm -hmm. comes to just the way they communicate. They're not aggressors. They're just aggressive. They go forward. They're opinionated. And then I've got two people in my family. One of them's me and the other one's my son that are all about, you know, peace and harmony and let's be nice. Mm -hmm. And so he and I would get real small and quiet and the two louder ones would take over. And I found myself going, whoa, I'm going to need a glass of Pinot Grigio before I even get in this mix because I've got to subdue and suppress my heightened anxiety to be in that atmosphere. And I mm -hmm. know you speak to this all the time. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and, and again, it was totally not working for me. It was masking what I was feeling. And then when it wore off, I either needed more or had to face the, the regret, the shame, the double life that that felt like to me internally. And then the problem itself. So now yeah. I've doubled, I've literally doubled my trouble. Absolutely. Tell, tell us a little bit more about the actual life when you become sober, because one of the things that happens and, um, and is, is for people to stop drinking, but then they feel like they need something in their hand or uh, they wonder about what other people are going to think about them. Um, so some people might realize that I need to make this, this change, but I don't know what to do next. Right. I, what, you know, what do I order? Um, do I, is it, does that mean I only drink water? Does that mean that I have to drink Red Bulls from here on out? Like what, what happens now if people are ready to take that next step? Yeah. Well, you know, the biggest, one of the biggest things, and I, I do share this in, in a free guide that I've got out there because you really do need to know like starting point, like this weekend <laughs> or, you know, like, what do I do first? And I think the first thing is just awareness, just even even if you want to keep drinking and you just start journaling when you're starting to think about drinking, what you think drinking will do, drink, journal about it. Did it did it do that? You know, I think just that awareness piece cannot be underestimated because it's it's not like, you know, you want to skip that step. You really just want to be aware of your drinking. So if you're already aware that, yeah, this is not working and I want to change. You know, I think pre-deciding before an event is so key. It's probably one of my biggest tools in my sober-minded toolbox is mm -hmm. pre-deciding. You can't decide once you get to the party or the bar or the cookout where you've always been a drinker that you're going to do something different unless you've pre-decided before you get in the environment where you're going to make a change. Mm -hmm. So I think that's that's step one is just is pre-deciding um, whether you need accountability for that or support. Um, I, you know, I don't know if you've seen or heard the tech talk about connection is the antidote to addiction. So just knowing that you're not alone and that other people are are changing their relationship too, mm -hmm. having like a wingman, like a buddy yeah. that's doing it too is super helpful. And then pre-planning. Um, gosh, there are so many things that you can order now at restaurants. It's one of my passions on Instagram. I'm constantly showing different drink alternatives that you don't have to just drink your water and feel like you're at a kid's table. Mm -hmm. you know, no one wants to feel like they they're at the kid's table and they've lost their adultness and their agency to to be like free. Right. And so, yeah, there's so many options out there today. But I think I think pre-deciding and pre-planning and having having a wingman. Is yeah, I'm a big believer in uh, in in um, pre in being proactive when it comes to yeah. uh, to making those type of decisions and what type of support network you need whenever you go into certain situations. Uh, one of the things that you and I were talking about is that a lot of people who struggle with drinking and a lot of people who I work with also struggle with a lot of people pleasing and a lot of codependent yeah. behavior. And that can lead to this concern of what are other people going to say when they realize that I'm not drinking, yeah. when they see that I'm not the, I'm not ordering all the shots or I'm not to, and I turn the, turn down the shot whenever they order everybody around or whatever the case might be, whenever we are 
And that's that's common anytime anyone makes a change. Right. Uh, if you you begin to stand, take a stance on any certain issue that might be important to you and you 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 turn that corner, especially if it was a large part of your life. Right. Can you walk us through what that process is like or like what what are some things that someone who might be struggling or kind of new to developing that inner self and those type of boundaries for someone who is a typical people people pleaser? Oh, totally. And I am a recovering people pleaser. <laughs> so I'm right there with y'all. If you are a recovering people pleaser, I'm just right there. Um, and so I think, you know, you, you may have heard the, the quote that's out there, which is so true that um, alcohol is the only drug you have to justify not taking, which is crazy. And you yeah. really, you know, I'd like to say you don't have to justify not drinking. Um, you don't owe anyone an explanation for your choices and what you're putting in your body. And if people, I think we walk around feeling like when we make this change, there's this huge spotlight on us and we feel very self-conscious and um, we're just, we've been drinking almost to fit in and now we're drinking and we feel like we perceive that we stand out. And what I have found just from my own experience is I really don't stand out that much. I mean, I can't really flatter myself enough to think that people really care that much about what I'm drinking. Some people do. And if they do really care, they care for two reasons. They care because they themselves are concerned about their own drinking habits and their own relationship with alcohol. So they're curious about yours. And then other people just don't want someone to be different because that also mirrors the fact that they're not different, that they're, that they are status quo, maybe you're kind of living on default. We are a mirror. We, in any decision we make that's counterculture or that's best for us, that maybe the main stream isn't doing, we walk around unintentionally like a mirror and people see a reflection oftentimes of themselves and their issues. And it's really not about us. Yeah. And so I think it does take confidence, but it's not confidence that's superior. Mm -hmm. It's confidence in my why. Why am I doing what I'm doing? I have a very strong why. W-H-Y. Why mm -hmm. am I motivated? Because when I leave the scene, when I leave the club, the party, the bar, whatever, I'm the one that still has to look at myself in the mirror. I'm the one with a 3 a.m. wake up call where my heart is racing and I feel anxious again and feel that feeling of dread like, oh, no, I did it again. I said I wasn't really going to drink tonight and I overdid it. <laughs> that's that's who I care about. And so I think I think it does take a level of confidence. But I think there's also an understanding that people really don't care. They, they don't. A lot. Most people don't, and they might push a little bit, but most people really just just don't. But a lot of times, when people do, it's really because they have an insecurity themselves. They know. Right. They probably know that they they might have been question questioning on whether or not they need to make some changes themselves, and you're actually kind of inspiring it. And it's difficult when you start right. seeing other people change, and you know that you're reluctant to change yourself, and so. Right. Oftentimes when you have that perception and you begin to clue in the fact that people begin, someone who's pushing you like, oh, how come you're not drinking? Right. And they begin to push. Yeah. That is a reflection of them, not a reflection right. of you. And so when you understand that, you can stay 
true to who you actually are. That's right. You know, and I, most of my friends still drink. Um, I've got a husband that drinks. Mm -hmm. So I, I think what I want from other people is exactly what I want to extend to other people, which is a no judgment zone. Mm -hmm. You do you, I'll do me. And if I inspire someone to change or someone's truly sober curious, then that's a different conversation. But if people are just kind of poking around to see kind of where my boundaries are, they're just mm -hmm. checking in to see if I'm serious. Yep. And that's where you just kind of have to own your own space, go back to your bigger why and realize, you know, that you're the one that that has to live with your self. And it goes back to that relationship with self where I'm protecting and guarding what is most precious to me, which has now become my sober mind. My presence, my yep. my actual presence is something now that I deem as valuable and worthy and worth protecting so why would i want to do anything to it that would uh demise it degrade it take it down you know and so for me my, my presence my sober mind is like a superpower one of the things i tell people like when someone is pushed like if you are making a conscious decision to do something that is better for you right and someone doesn't want you to do something that's going to enhance your life tells you a lot about who that person actually is. It totally does. I agree. That's like a relational maybe red flag when mm -hmm. someone's not rooting for you for the best for you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Jen, thank you very much. Uh, tell, tell us a little bit about where people can find you at and tell us a little bit more about uh, your programs and about Silver Sis and, yeah. um, and where they can, they can find out more information about you. Yeah, that's awesome. So for you ladies out there, I can download tonight, um, even use it for this weekend. It's like literally my top, my top five strategies that have helped me um, escape the wine witch at wine o'clock and uh, do it without feeling deprived or, or using a bunch of willpower. So that's just at www.sobersys.com. And um, that'll also put you on my email list. And I would love to stay in touch with you, get to know you better, share with you more about my story. And then at the beginning of every month, I run a 21 day, just 21 days. Y'all can do it three weeks, a 21 day reset. I call it a reset challenge because it is a challenge because I'm taking you out of your comfort zone. But it's really like hitting the reset button um, versus wearing a label or saying never ever forever um a lot of a lot of times when people feel like they have to change their relationship with alcohol they feel like it is all or nothing and what if you could just literally take a break learn a lot make some new friends that are also struggling with wine o'clock as well that have had success and then you could look at alcohol differently that's my biggest goal in in the first step that i offer um in this 21 day challenge is that my job is done if you can take this 21 day challenge and it's not about perfection, it's more about progress. And you can honestly say that you will never look at alcohol the same. That is my goal is that through education, empowerment, um, and, and some practical tools that you won't look at going out and socializing with alcohol the same. You may choose to keep drinking. You may choose to drink less. Listen, a lot of women I work with choose to not drink anymore at all because after 21 days the clarity of a sober mind starts to kick in and the benefits 
from a physical, mental, emotional, spiritual level start to kind of start to surface. And then you want to keep going. So I've got a lot of steps after that 21 days, but that that 21 day, it is seriously like you just hit the reset button and it gets you off of that autopilot. It gets you off of the mindless sipping at night. That's what I used to say. I used to be mindful by day and then mindlessly sipping at night, just in front of the TV, just kind of pour one more. What am I doing? You know, like bring it in. So that's that's really where I like to help women. Jen, thank you very much for those of you who are following or if you're listening to the playback or if you're listening on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, make sure you guys give her a follow. Make sure you guys check her out. And it's always important to reevaluate uh, your, your relationship with alcohol. And this has been the Matt Pfeiffer Experience. And I will talk to all of you guys next week in the next episode. Until then, you guys have a great evening. Mm-hmm.